As we turn to our study this morning, we're going to read a few verses from Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, which is where we are. Mark, chapter 9, and verses 30 to 32. This follows straight on from the transfiguration of Christ and the healing of the child possessed by the deaf and dumb spirit. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, And he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. Jesus is here returning to the same theme that he took up in chapter 8. Remember, immediately after Simon Peter, speaking for the other disciples as well, confessed that Jesus was the Christ. In Mark 8, verse 31, we read that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. It's there in the previous chapter, and here, uh, not long after, Jesus begins to teach the same thing again. And then if you just quickly refer to Mark chapter 10, we find him returning to exactly the same theme in verse 32. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. And what is clearly intriguing about each of these references is that we don't get in any sense an impression that this is a theme that the disciples were just longing for Jesus to return to, as though they couldn't wait to get back to that particular subject. It's something that he keeps introducing. Let me just give you one more reference that underlines that in Luke chapter 9. This is Luke's account of the passage in Mark 9, immediately after the healing of the demoniac child. In Luke 9 and verse 43, and they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered everyone at all things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples, you see, he's bringing them back to this subject. They're they're taken up with a miracle and the amazing power of God But he says to his disciples, let these sayings sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them that they perceived it not. And they feared to ask him of that saying. The Lord Jesus keeps returning to these as the main things concerning his ministry. And undoubtedly here he has reluctant hearers, but it is absolutely necessary for him 
to speak of these things. I want to just try and draw out some lessons from that which are relevant to us. First, we need to notice then that Christ knows all about these main things. No one has prompted him to speak like this. The disciples certainly didn't want it. His family thought him mad, at least for some while during his earthly ministry, although by the end many of them were converted. The scribes and Pharisees certainly weren't in on this particular line of reasoning. So how did he know these things? How did he know about the betrayal of the Son of Man, about his death, his atoning death, and his resurrection? Well, there can only be one answer. It's because Jesus is one with the Father, God the Father, and one with God the Holy Spirit. He is the Son of God. As it says in the very early uh, narrative from his life, as a 12-year-old boy in the temple with the teachers, he says, must I not be about my father's business? He knows that this is his father's work and his father's business for him. And he knows it, above all, because it's there in the scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures at this point in time. He had read the scriptures as a boy, as a young man. He had read them. He had immersed himself in them. And more than that, by the Spirit, he had written them in that sense. He had inspired them. The Spirit spoke of Christ, and it was Christ who is the soul and some of the scripture. And as he read the various parts of the Old Testament He saw himself perfectly reflected there in all the prediction of Scripture. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 53, which we read earlier, I'm just going to refer to passages, I'm not going to necessarily read them, but just to remind you of the scope of this. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 53, we have such a vivid and prolonged account of Christ the Messiah dying for his people, bearing their transgressions, and yet not being left in death, but finally dividing a portion with the great and dividing the spoil with the strong, a clear intimation of his resurrection. We have other passages, for example, in the Psalms. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Speaking of his sufferings. Psalm 40, sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, Mine ear hast thou not opened, burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then I said, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. And it is the writer to the Hebrews who reminds us that this is the Messiah speaking, this is the Christ speaking, speaking of the giving of his body in atoning sacrifice. Or we could go to such passages as Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, the offering up of animals uh, by the high priest as he goes into the sanctuary, the inner sanctuary, the release of the scapegoat with the sins of God's people imputed to that animal in a ceremonial sense. He sees his death so clearly uh, portrayed. And then he speaks 
not only of his death, of being killed, but he also speaks here of being delivered into the hands of men. And that is speaking of his betrayal. And again, as Christ read the Old Testament, and as indeed he inspired it as the spirit of prophecy, uh, he would have seen in such accounts as Cain and Abel in the betrayal of that brother by Cain, in the account of the betrayal of Joseph by his brothers, in the betrayal of David by Absalom, and in many other places he would have sensed and known that this is speaking of the betrayal of that perfect Israel, Jesus, the Son of God. And he would have understood perfectly what such a reference as Zechariah chapter 11 meant as it speaks of God taking his staff, beauty, and cutting it asunder. And he would have known uh, when it goes on to say, I said unto them, if ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. And we combine that passage with Jeremiah chapter 19. And again, there is such a strong prediction of Judas Iscariot and the 30 pieces of silver and that money used to buy part of what was the potter's fields. His death, his betrayal, and his resurrection in the script, the scriptures are full of resurrection, the Old Testament scriptures. <clears throat> so, for example, in Psalm 16, <clears throat> we end that psalm in this way. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Thou wilt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption, as that is used even in the, in the Acts uh, to speak of the resurrection of Christ. Or come to Isaiah chapter 25 and verses 6 and following. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wine on the lees of fat things full of marrow of wine on the lees well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all the people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. Or come to chapter 26, verse 19. Thy dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Or come to just one more reference in Daniel chapter 12. And verses 2 and 3. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, <coughs> and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine 
as the brightness of the firmament, and they shall that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. And throughout the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus would be reflecting on what speaks of himself as he sees himself as the subject as well as the author of these passages. So that when he says the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men and they that kill him, and they shall kill him and after that he is killed he shall rise the third day. There's no way in which Jesus is just somehow as some sort of maverick freelance he comes into strange fanatical ideas but rather he is reflecting the teaching of the word of God from the very beginning. He is reflecting the eternal counsels of God that he would give his son to be an offering for our sin and to rise from the dead so that we could be justified by faith in him. Christ knows all about this. And whether or not the disciples want to hear it, he keeps saying to them, this is what it's about. This is the heart of things. They want to go on to other things, some of them very unsavory, as we see. Uh, Later on, they're talking about which of them shall be the greatest. They're talking about, from verse 38 in Mark 9, about people who don't, dot every I and cross every T with them, and they're rather jealous of that and uh, upset by that. And no doubt they have their minds on all the eschatological glory that they think will come to Israel at the last. But Jesus is bringing them back to this. He knows about them. And my first application is this. We need to know about them too. We need to see that this is above all what the scriptures are about. We need to understand that the scriptures are not here to make us dilettantes of prophecy, not here to uh, tickle our our, our thoughts and uh, give us more and more understanding about the role of the states or some particularly minute uh, area of Christian doctrine. But we need to understand that even as the Son of Man was taken up with the fact of his atoning death and his burial and his resurrection. And he he keeps on sounding this unwelcome note to the disciples in this very immature time of their uh, discipleship. We need to see that we have to get this right into the warp and woof of our thinking. We need to understand that this is the focus of Scripture And we've already seen in some of our studies in 1 Corinthians that when churches lose sight of this, they get into all kinds of problems. The problems are not caused by modernity. The problems are not caused by some particular aspect of uh, society. The problems are caused right there in the church when it loses sight of this particular main thing or these main things. And so the Apostle Paul there at Corinth says, When I came to you, I remind you, I was determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, he knew about these main things. And his concern was that these main things should get right back into the heart of the church at Corinth with all its errors, the immorality, the wrong thinking, the wrong behavior, the wrong use of the Lord's table. All these things were settled by or were started by and could be resolved by 
being aware of the main things. So he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And we can hear some of these clever clogs at Corinth thinking, oh, Paul, we know all about this. We're wanting something more charismatic. We're wanting something more cutting-edge than this. But the Apostle Paul, you see, is full of the Spirit of Christ. And he's bringing them back to that which is going to sort out how they use their spiritual gifts, how they use their bodies, and how they view their preachers. He knows all about them. And we could go to other letters. Let me just refer you to one other letter. It's not just at Corinth, but we think of the great problems in the churches in Asia Minor and Galatia. We think of how some of them are going back to law-keeping as a way of being justified. And he says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you. In other words, this wasn't just something at the beginning of your faith. This is something that you should never have lost sight of. Jesus Christ evidently set forth, crucified among you. And so a great proportion of this letter to the Galatians, the heart of it is an exposition of the death of Christ. An exposition of Christ as the seed of Abraham, redeeming us from the curse of the law. And of course the, passage, the, the, the chapters are full of resurrection as well. He knows all about them. Jesus knows all about these things. Secondly, we see in Mark 9 that he teaches all about them. Notice that, verse 31, he taught his disciples he didn't just have the, these private opinions, but kept them to himself because he didn't want to upset them. Kept them to himself because he didn't want to go against the flow. Kept them to himself because actually they were full of the astonishing miracle that Jesus had done with the demoniac child. They were full of the astonishing sights that three of them had, had no doubt told the others about the transfiguration of Christ with his clothes shining and uh, Moses and Elijah there. Uh, and they, it would have been so nice to have left them in that nice, comfortable bubble, but he's, he's, he's not going to leave them there. He's going to teach them something. Even though, as Luke makes very clear, they didn't understand. They were in denial. They didn't understand. They didn't want to understand. And in Mark chapter 8, we see... The, uh, result, the, the response of Peter, when Christ raises this subject after Peter has confessed Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, and then Jesus raises this subject, but Peter begins to rebuke him. He didn't understand. He didn't want to understand at that point. Possibly he dreaded the personal implications for himself if the Son of Man is going to be killed and betrayed and crucified. 
No doubt they were strongly influenced by rabbinic teaching, very one-sided interpretation of the Old Testament. Yes, great when it speaks about the glory of the Messiah, great when it speaks about the Christ coming in the clouds of heaven, great when it speaks about Israel filling the earth, but they don't want Isaiah 52. At least if they have it, they would rather it just spoke about the prophet and not about the servant of the Lord who is the son of God himself. But he still teaches them. And eventually, of course, they come round to it and eventually they understand. And you could say that really it's only after his resurrection that they really do begin to understand that everything falls into place. He is very patient and compassionate with us, is he not? But our understanding lacks, and we can see how his ministry on the road to Emmaus is still on the same main things after his resurrection. What does he return to in his teaching? He speaks to these downcast disciples. He says, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He's speaking of Christ and his sufferings and his glory, his sufferings and his resurrection and his intercession as our high priest. He taught these things. My second application is this. So should the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. People don't want to hear it. They want to hear about how they can live well, how they can die well, how they can have a good marriage or not, or whatever it is, a good relationship, how God will accommodate them with all their sin and, and allow them all their sin and they can still be happy and still be themselves. They want to hear all of that kind of rubbish. But they don't want to hear about the death of Christ for sin. They don't want to hear about God vindicating his son as our high priest and sacrifice. But we've got to teach it. We've got to disseminate that. Whether through spoken word or written word or whether through media, whatever means. Whatever the misunderstanding, whatever the cost. He teaches all about these main things. And then thirdly, we see how he embraces all these main things. It's not just that he knows about it. It's not just even that he teaches it. But thirdly, he embraces it. He embraces it. He keeps, not, he keeps returning to this theme. And he's on his way ultimately to Jerusalem. Not as a maverick free agent, but in perfect unison with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. As he says in John's Gospel, chapter 10, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. 
And when he makes his high priestly prayer in John 17, one of the things he says in his prayer is this, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And you notice his commitment, his embracing of this divine plan is there to be seen in verse 30. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. You say, well, how does that show his embracing of the plan? It shows it because he knows that the time hasn't yet come. And we have that note quite a a number of times in the Gospels. His time hasn't yet come, so he asks people just to keep the lid on certain things. Don't go uh, speaking unwisely about these things. It isn't yet time for him. There's three years of ministry in all to be undertaken. There are more days of witness to his own truth and grace, especially around Jerusalem. He has to fulfill all righteousness. There's a perfect timing, a time and a season for his death on the cross and then his rising again. And my third application is this. We too must embrace the plan of the Lord for us. We must know about these main things. We must teach these main things as his people. And we must embrace all the implications of these things for ourselves. It means that our purpose in life is not to be healthy, wealthy and wise, although some of that might be good. Our purpose in life is not to express ourselves and to feel good about ourselves, although there are aspects of that which are quite legitimate. Our purpose in life is to live to the glory of God and to proclaim that glory, especially in Christ, dying for sinners and saving sinners and being alive forevermore. We should embrace that, whatever that means. And it certainly isn't popularity. It certainly isn't affirmation by the rulers and the movers and shakers of this world. Only very rarely is it affirmation and approval from such. It certainly isn't being promoted as this is exactly what society needs, but we should embrace it. And we should keep our eyes on Christ. We should be listening to the words of Jesus, to um, uh, the Apostle John in John 21 as he, as he uh, meditates about, um, sorry, I've got that the wrong way around, uh, Peter, the, uh, Peter as he sees uh, about his, his colleague, the Apostle John, um, and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following, and he says, Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? And Jesus says to him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. There's a personal taking up of the cross. There's a personal following of Christ. There's a personal commitment to his gospel, to his cause, to the extension 
of his glorious kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. I dare say most of us here know about these things. I dare say we want the church to teach these things. But the question is, are we embracing these things? Are they getting right into our soul and steering our lives as the Lord Jesus Christ taught the disciples? He taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they that shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him, but he was still going to return to the subject until they really grasped it and lived it.